Welcome to the Root and Remedy podcast, where we discuss all things women's health, hormones, fertility, and body confidence. I'm your host, Vanessa, a woman's health and fertility nutritionist and the co-founder of Root and Remedy Wellness. You can find our courses, free community group, and all other resources at rootandremedywellness.com. Buckle up, my friends, because today's episode is a heavy hitter. And when you hear this information, you cannot unhear it. You can't go back. It is such an important and crucial episode because none of us were taught anything about the history of birth control, especially the pill. And in particular, those of us who were on it, maybe are still on it for a number of years. This is really important for you to know, not only because it helps you make the most educated decision possible for you and your individual body. It helps you decide what you think is best for you, which is at the end of the day, all we're trying to do with this podcast and literally all the information we put out. But it's also just really important for you to know the history of something like birth control, how it came to be, who started it, what were the clinical trials, where did the funding come from, how many people actually tested it, how has it evolved over time. It's really, really important for us to have this information and to know these things or else we're just blindly moving forward. Maybe we're even blindly taking it. And for me especially, I never really thought about the history of birth control until meeting Olivia, doing my teacher training when it came to the fertility awareness method. I wasn't taught zilch about birth control and where it came from. So I hope that you find this episode as interesting as I did Olivia literally makes my jaw drop to the floor 500,000 times. And this is part one of two. So they're released at the same time. So you can get into part two as soon as you're done part one. But I really hope that you love this episode. And if you aren't already familiar with Olivia, she is our very own co-founder. So her and I co-founded Root and Remedy Wellness. We have very different roles within the business, and usually I am taking care of most of the podcasting, but I got the good fortune and the amazing job of interviewing Olivia today, which is really special because she's such an eloquent, incredible speaker. She is such an amazing communicator, and you'll get to hear a lot more about her schooling, her education, the research she's doing. She's getting her PhD in reproductive justice, so she'll talk to you about what that exactly is and what really lights her up. And I hope that you get to connect with her a little bit more because you've heard my my voice, you've seen my face a zillion times, but it's really important that you also know who Olivia is, you know where she comes from and why she's so passionate about this work. So let's get in to part one of two of the history of the birth control pill with Olivia Berkowitz. Tell us about the research that you do and how your personal story led you to be so interested in the world of reproductive rights. Yeah, for sure. So I've always been really interested in women's rights, in gender issues, and especially in pregnancy and birth. I've always found those so fascinating. And I think throughout my studies, I started to learn more and more about the law. So I did my undergrad in psych and criminology. I did a master's in criminology and sociolegal studies, and now I'm in the fourth year of my doctorate in the same department. And so the more I learned about the law, the more I started to see a really interesting intersection between law and pregnancy and medicine. And what really fascinated me was the way in which pregnancy creates this problem space for the law. So our legal system operates on the assumption that we have a legal person. There's an individual. 
So I am separate from you. If you do harm to me, you are personally held accountable for that. And now pregnancy is so much more complicated because there isn't really a consensus in our society about whether or not we have one person, whether we have two entities, the pregnant person and the fetus. Do they deserve different legal rights? Are they separate people? Like We can't really come to a conclusion or a consensus uh, on that issue. And so the more I started to learn about it, the more I realized that I had never come across this information before. And so for me, my interest in this subject is very much professional. It's sort of academic, but it's also really personal. And so as I was learning about pregnancy and about women's bodies and birth control, the pill, all of these reproductive rights issues, I started to think about myself and the things that I had gone through. I started to think about my friends and the women and menstruators in my life and those that had experienced abortions, those that had used the pill. And so even though there is sort of an academic and an intellectual interest there, to me it feels very real because I'm, as I'm reading about this, I'm reading about the possibilities of my own body. And particularly when it comes to the pill, I was on the pill for uh, over a decade and I worked with you and that was how I was able to get off the pill safely, which was amazing. But I remember going to my doctor at one point, I think I'd been taking it for maybe five-ish years, and I, this was maybe when I was about 20 or so. And I remember asking her, I've already been on it for five years. I know I don't want kids anytime soon. Should I explore different options? What should I do? Should I stay on the pill? And she was a great doctor, but very matter of fact and very kind of to the point. And she just told me, you know, stay on it. It's the most effective option we can talk about other things if you want, but I think you should stay on the pill. And that conversation was kind of shut down. And so that was really my only exposure to what the pill was. That was my only really introduction or education to it. And so once I continued on in my studies and especially started my doctorate, I started learning more about not just sort of what the pill is, but how it was started, who created it, um, the different movements and social forces that created it. And I started to realize how little I knew about this thing that I was putting into my body every single day and had, there was no end in sight at that point. And so I think there is really for me a merging of the intellectual and then my own sort of personal, uh, personal interest. And isn't it also just so nuts that we're not even have, having that conversation of here are the risks, here are the pros, here are the cons. It's just like, or most people aren't. I, I know I wasn't. Even when there was a red flag that was raised, right? Like my mom had breast cancer when we were growing up. So when I was talking about going on birth control for my acne, she sat my doctor down. It was the three of us. And she was like, I am terrified. My daughter will get breast cancer. Is there any correlation? He was like, nope. And I, I again, it's, it's not to blame. I, I love my doctor with all of my heart. He was great, but there just wasn't really consideration for that fear. And it wasn't even a conversation. It was just like, nope, she's good. Keep going in time, realize that actually there is a huge risk and that has to do with estrogen and hormones. And we talk about that stuff in, in other episodes and things like that, but it just goes to show in, and I know a lot of people can relate to that kind of story where even if you do start to bring up the conversation, it's almost always shut down or the person you're asking may not have answers. So they're not going to humor you or, or talk to you if they don't really know what's going on. And I find that to be hard because then we kind of have this mindset of, 
oh, okay, there's nothing under the hood here. Like nothing, nothing wrong is here. It, it's like, it's this panacea of all this good stuff and there's no consequences and it's not to scare anybody, right? Like that's not what this conversation is for. It's just to think critically about something that if you are going to take it every single day, it's important to know the history of it. It's also crazy, which we'll, <laughs> you'll get into and it like yeah, is mind blowing. Definitely. But it's just interesting that we we're not taught any of this. And even when we, we put forth the question or try to dip yeah. our toes in, in curiosity, it's kind of like, Shut down. Yeah, it's often shut down. And I think that's so tough because we already don't really know how to advocate for ourselves. And as you said, this isn't an effort to demonize or blame medicine or blame individual doctors by any means. They're really just working within a system that doesn't give them the time always, um, unless you're going maybe to a naturopath or another sort of more holistic practitioner who has that time to, to talk more in depth. But my own experience is very much go in, they tell you, there's no kind of back and forth, there's no conversation. Even when there was a concern, as in your story, it is sort of just shut down. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, pair that with the fact that we're not taught this in school. How, how else do we know? We don't even know what questions to ask. And that was something that was really frustrating for me because then I stayed on the pill for another five or six years, uh, well into my 20s. And at that point, you know, I, I got to the point where I was like, okay, it's been a decade. I'm not planning to have kids anytime soon. Am I going to stay on for another decade? I really didn't know what to do. And it wasn't until I started having those conversations with you that there started to be kind of like a light at the end of the tunnel. But yeah, it's really challenging um, that we're not taught this information and that even when we try to find out more, we're not always met with the time and the consideration that we need. Right. And with TikTok and Instagram and all of the information now that we have access to, which is great in some ways, but also not great in other ways because there's no barrier to entry, right? Yeah. Anyone can say anything. Anyone can call themselves an expert oh, yeah. when they have no expertise. <laughs> yeah. So now with, with birth control, now it's almost like we're getting the total other end of the spectrum where people are like, it is the worst thing to happen to women. It is toxic. It's poison. Like there are some really bold claims being made. And it's usually from someone who had a really horrible experience or maybe from someone who does a little bit more research with the inner workings of the pill and hormones or some kind of holistic practitioner. It's usually someone in the, in the health space. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit to that delicate balance between, yes, we love having more information, but now it's almost this fear mongering of how dare you be on the pill? It's toxic. It's horrible for you. Get off immediately. But then there's the other conversation of it's actually been quite liberating and very empowering for us to have the ability to control something like getting pregnant. So can you talk to us about that delicate balance? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it's both. And I think it's so challenging in a world right now that really traffics in social media because we only have five seconds or 10 seconds to make an impression. So a lot of people start with these clickbaity headlines that really are often so polarizing that really miss the nuance in the middle. And anytime we're talking about reproductive justice, reproductive issues of any kind, the answer is always somewhere in the middle. It's always more complicated than this is the most amazing thing to ever happen or this is the most terrible thing to ever happen and all women are oppressed. Like it's just, it's not that simple. And so I think that's really challenging uh, to convey. And it's also, I mean, not to be cynical, but when we're thinking about people trying to get you to buy certain products, often their narratives are going to be a little bit more dramatic. Um, and so, like I said before, the answer is really both. I mean, 
my problem, I think, with the pill is that we just don't know. We're not taught. We're often put on it without having all of the information. And sometimes we're so young, like I was a teenager, I might not have been in the state to be able to absorb all of the consequences. Um, But that's really where my problem lies. And of course, there are a lot of side effects to the pill. Having that said, it is still another option for menstruators. And I think that's really, really important, especially in a world where our reproductive choices are being foreclosed at every turn. To me, anything that gives you more options is a good thing. What I would love to see is a world in which we knew what we were taking, even if we decided to take it and then took steps to uh, make sure our body isn't depleted while we're on the pill. Like Even that is kind of a happy medium for me. But I have lots of girlfriends who I've chatted with recently. We've had lots of conversations about the consequences of the pill, and they still say to me, you know, I understand, I know those things, but I'm not in a place where I can get pregnant, and I don't have the time to learn uh, fertility awareness method, for example, something that you and I love, and for, there are some people that just eat that up, like us, but others that just say, you know what, this is the option for me right now, and I have to respect that decision. So I think I love that we can talk about this in a podcast context because it's a little bit more long form. We can really get into the nitty gritty of the things that are great about it, the things that are really liberating for women, and then the things that are more problematic, that are more challenging, um, and start to hopefully combat that social media narrative that like, this is evil, it's the worst thing, it shouldn't even be on the market, because I just, I think that's, I think either take is kind of useless. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you're hitting on a really important point too, that all of the things that we talk about is in service of you making the best decision for your body. Mm-hmm. I don't think any, I don't care who it is, your nutritionist, your doctor, whoever, should blatantly say this is for you you take this or else it's more like let's give you a smorgasbord of all of your options let's talk about the pros and the cons but again that takes time so Mm -hmm. a lot of the time you as the consumer you need to do your own research like stuff like this you need to read articles I know it's annoying but you do have to do it you have to take it into your own hands because no one else is going to educate you and then you make the best decision for you. I'm sure there were times, at least in my life, I don't want to speak for you, but I wonder if you feel the same, where knowing all the pros and cons, I would still pick birth control. Probably when I was in university. Oh, without I didn't a doubt. have a boyfriend. Yeah. I was exploring. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> I was like, you know what? I will take the side effects. Yeah. Obviously, I would have loved to know what to do to support my gut and my liver and nutrient deficiencies. I wish someone was like, all right, you're 17, whatever, enjoy, but take XYZ, do this protocol, make sure you're doing a few things, nothing crazy, just to make sure you're getting support you need. And then at a different place in my life in my 20s, then I was like, oh, I'm actually in a place where I'd want to come off. And that was the best decision for me at the time. So I just love that we're having that that conversation. I want to just make sure we get, get this from the jump, that it's all about your individual preference, but you need to have all the information to make an educated decision. Definitely. And I think Of course, we'll follow the recommendations of our trusted professionals. But yeah, having that information is so important. And I think also just psychologically, even knowing where our symptoms are coming from, because I think generally speaking, women are often sort of written off as, oh, you're being hormonal, you're PMSing. And that is so frustrating for us. And even for years and years, I very much identified as a very anxious person. I felt very stressed all the time. And I think there were life circumstances that contributed to that. But in hindsight, I wonder about the ways in which the pill was depleting me. And I had no concrete reason 
to understand what my symptoms were. And that's really challenging. So even if we knew the pill has a tendency to to do X, Y, Z, it can make you feel anxious, moody, depressed. It's not you. You're not broken. It's knowing a little bit more about why that happens. I think even just for our sense of well-being, that's really important. Even if we decide, okay, I can put this in context. I know that maybe this is the pill. This isn't me. It's not my fault, but I'm going to still stay on the pill. I'm going to do, you know, this list of things to help support my body. Um, but that's my decision. Like I wish, I wish that could have been an option. Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It's all about options. Exactly. Okay. So is there anything else you want to touch on before we talk about the history of birth control, the pill in general? Uh, no, I think I'm ready to get into it. (laughs) Okay. Y'all we're getting into six things you need to know about the birth control pill. We're about to blow your mind six ways from Sunday, okay? Mm. Okay, so take us into number one. Just go off, girl. Well, I think I'm going to start first with why it's important to know. Is that okay? absolutely. Okay. So the pill, as we know, is absolutely everywhere. There are over 150 million users worldwide. It's the most common form of reversible birth control on the market. And yet, especially I think people of our generation know very little about where it came from and who created it and why and how. And medicine doesn't exist in a vacuum. So even when we think today, there are recently within the last, I think, month, there's a birth control that's now available in the U.S. without a doctor's prescription. We can see that as being or at least I understand that as being a response to the criminalization of abortion. The idea that doctors want to make sure that women have more options. If they can't uh, terminate a pregnancy, maybe they can get on the pill and prevent themselves from getting pregnant at all. So we have to understand the fact that medicine is a response to society, but it's also a reflection of society. And so I think that's really interesting in the context of birth control and the pill specifically because the history of the pill really represents some of the most amazing parts of the 20th century like women's liberation, free love, scientific progress, but also some of the scariest and most horrible parts of our history including eugenics which I'll get into in a little bit and describe that, racism, the exploitation of marginalized communities, And so it's really important to know what went into it and what the um, what the desire was when they were creating this, because we get a very clear picture of what was happening in society at the time. And it's a little bit maybe trite to say, but I think it's so important to look at history in order to know how to move forward. And today we're in a world where abortion is being recriminalized and uh, prenatal care and other forms of reproductive medicine are really struggling. And so we want to look to the past in order to know how to best move forward and how we cannot uh, reproduce those issues and really move forward in the best way. Um, I also think it's just so fascinating because when the pill was released, and so the first pill, Enovid, was uh, brought to market in 1960, there were a number of potential side effects. And yet women absolutely flocked to it. And to me, that doesn't mean necessarily that women were tricked or that we were passive victims of this story. But it very much shows me how much agency women had and how important it was to them to control their fertility and to choose if and when they got pregnant. 
So again, going back to something we talked about a few minutes ago, I think this is a really complicated, nuanced story. It shows the ways in which different communities, different women, particularly women of color, were used and exploited, but it also shows women's agency. And so I think that's really important to draw out. So I can move on to the first thing. Let's hear it, girl. Like. Let's hear it. Now okay. we all want to learn. So <laughs> give us the history. So the first thing that I think is really interesting and important to know is that the pill was largely funded by a philanthropic heiress. So when we think about, I mean, if we even think about the funding of a drug at all, which I don't often think about where the money is coming from. But if we do, we assume that it might be coming from a pharmaceutical company or maybe the government or something along that vein. But the pill was largely funded by one woman, and her name was Catherine McCormick. So I'm going to take a step back and introduce some of the other major players at the time, and then we're going to come back to Catherine. So the first was Margaret Sanger. She is a name that people might have heard before. If you know anything about the history of the pill, you've probably heard Margaret Sanger. She continued on to create Planned Parenthood, which still exists today. So she was born in the 1870s. She was a nurse and a sex educator and a birth control advocate. So it's important to know that at the time, her work wasn't just taboo. It was completely illegal. So at the time... About 30 states in the U.S. were under the control of something called Comstock laws. These were Victorian-era legislation that had very repressive puritanical values. So they were really, Anthony Comstock was the, the main lawmaker here. He was very interested in quelling what he considered to be vice. And so sex was one of those things. So he made birth control and even the dissemination of contraceptives, completely illegal. They were criminalized. So you couldn't even hand out a pamphlet about contraceptives. People couldn't educate themselves. I know, <laughs> I'm seeing your face. What? Wait, so what is his MO? Why would he want to do that? I mean, the idea was that sex should not exist outside of the marriage. And even within marriage. Oh my God. Actually. <laughs> I mean, keep in mind, so this he is. He was like trying to, con he was like, this is, I believe this is wrong. Therefore, I'm going to put all of these things in place so that no one totally. can. Totally. So that your risk of. Yeah. Wow. That's I mean, dumb. this is the okay. 1800s. So. Right. I understand. Take that with the, I know. But even Still we're like, how? Yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, but it was so dramatic that you couldn't even give information about it. So we, wow. people were not educated. We didn't know what was going on. So at the time, Margaret Sanger was doing this work. And it was illegal. Interestingly, she was from a middle-class family. Her mom had 18 pregnancies, resulting in 14 live births. And she died very young, probably as a result of being pregnant her entire adult life. And so people posit that this is maybe one of the reasons why Margaret was so interested in birth control and the idea of contraception, because she saw her mom die very young. She saw what it did to a family to have limited resources and so many mouths to feed. And so she really um, took this and, and integrated it into her career and made this really her life's mission. She was extremely vocal, extremely passionate. She created uh, one of the first, or the first actually, birth control clinic in the U.S. It was of course against New York law and so it got shut down. She got arrested. She was then released, did it again, 
So very much a, a tireless crusader of women's rights. What was the birth control clinic at that point? Like if she didn't, if birth control itself was illegal, or mm-hmm. was birth control created at this point? No. So there were certain contraceptives, right? Um, like condoms right. and diaphragms, but birth control as we have today, not really. Um, but she was mostly just giving out information and giving out pamphlets. So she created a little book that was to and help And that got her women. arrested. Yeah. Wow. Her okay. and her staff arrested. <laughs> so, but she continued. She, uh, she continued on. And in 1917, she met this woman, Catherine McCormick. So that was the super rich the lady. The worlds collide. <laughs> She's like, sick, I need some funding. She's like, oh, I met a, a rich lady <laughs> with money to spare. So Catherine grew up in very different circumstances. She was from a very wealthy family. She married the heir to an American manufacturing company. So she was just loaded. Swimming in dough. Yeah, girl. she was, <laughs> had money to burn. And so sadly, over the course of her marriage, her husband was diagnosed with what would now be termed schizophrenia, and he was institutionalized. And she was very concerned that his mental illness would be genetic. And so she vowed never to have children. And so again, these are things that people think, okay, maybe this is a contributing factor to why she cared so much about birth control because she had very little access, even as a very privileged woman in society, to control her childbearing. So again, it's thinking about these very personal, very grounded motives of why people are uh, driven to create different types of medicine. So... She was very wealthy. She was a speaker at women's suffrage rallies. She was the vice president of the League of Women Voters, and she befriended Sanger in 1917. So she was. A, these are influential ladies at the time. Uh, a very kind of interesting side note story, which I kind of love. In the 1920s, she, Catherine McCormick, smuggled over a thousand diaphragms from Europe to the U.S., and so she would travel. Uh, across overseas. She would actually pose as a scientist. She was very well educated. She, I believe, had a bachelor in uh, biology, which was quite rare at the time. Women were not educated in formal, um, you know, graduate studies, undergraduate studies. Their education for women wasn't the biggest priority. So this was quite unusual, but she would travel to Europe and she would actually pose as a scientist. So she was using her vast knowledge. She also spoke multiple languages and she would pretend to be a French scientist and convince these diaphragm manufacturers to send thousands of diaphragms to her chateau in Geneva. So she had a chateau. She has a literal castle in Geneva. Yo, this girl's a queen. This is awesome. Oh wait, no, maybe not. We're going to get into that. This particular action, (laughs) I know, this action is like pretty sick, but they're super problematic. So Yeah, so she would convince these manufacturers to give her all of these diaphragms. She would then sew them into the lining of her clothes and bring them back to the States. She's committed. So she was smuggling things back. And yeah, super committed, which is like very, very cool and badass. So I would love to just stop there and think of them as fierce feminists and tireless crusaders for women's rights. But it's just not that simple. And we really have to put them in the context of their other views at the time. So at this period, the eugenics movement was absolutely booming. Now, for those that might not know, broadly eugenics was an effort to improve the quality of the population. Now, 
there's so much to describe here. I don't want to go too far into it. So this is, I'm painting it with broad strokes, but just so we understand. There were positive eugenics and negative eugenics. Positive policies were encouraging the reproduction of certain groups of society. Negative eugenics were dissuading certain populations, particularly populations that were considered problematic or, quote, defective. That was a term thrown around a lot. They were dissuading them from reproducing. So the idea was that social problems had a genetic basis. And if we can just stop a certain group of people from reproducing, we will nip that in the bud and get rid of those social problems. So things like criminality, things like sexual promiscuity, they were seen as being part of a whole group of people. And so they were really trying to prevent those people from having children. A horrible example of this in the Canadian context is the forced sterilization of indigenous women. That was happening for a very, very long time. There are still reports of it today. Another really extreme example is the Nazi party. Now, these are, of course, more extreme versions of eugenics. It's a very broad idea, a very broad movement. Some eugenic thinking was couched in the language of benevolence. It was very much more about humanitarian aims, about improving population and bettering society, bettering families. But really it was about racial purity and population control and nationalism. That was something that was talked about a lot. It was all in service of the country, in service of the population. So Margaret Sanger in particular, Catherine McCormick as well. Sorry, can you say which one's the heiress and yeah. which one, just one more time? Sure. So Margaret Sanger, who was the nurse and the sex educator, and Catherine McCormick, who was our heiress, were very involved in the eugenics movement, particularly Margaret Sanger. She... Oh, yeah. So she thought about birth control or the eventual creation of birth control as creating more options for some, but also as a very effective means of controlling the population. Ooh, that's a slippery slope. Very. So she believed that the country was suffering due to uncontrolled reproduction. These are her terms. And this really relies on very racist ideas about people of color and immigrants as super breeders. I say so that she was saying like, it's the wrong type of people that are having too many kids. Yes. Is, it doesn't matter how many kids the quote unquote good quality people mm-hmm. with the good quality genetics have. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming we're talking about mostly white people, mostly people that have money or Definitely. that come from certain backgrounds, mm-hmm. not people that are struggling due to any type of circumstance. Mm-hmm. In that moment, did they also think that that behavior was hereditary? Like you were saying, Mm -hmm. a criminal, right? Are you saying then they were thinking they shouldn't have children because their children are going to be criminals? Yeah, definitely. Even though, like, where does that come from? There were sort of different movements within the eugenics uh, theory. So at one point, they did think that it was biological. They thought this is literally part of their genetic makeup. So we just have to nip this in the bud so that those genes can't be passed on, which of course is sounds ludicrous to us. As things kind of moved over time, they thought that it was more cultural, but still the effort was the same to limit people's 
childbearing, whether or not it was the genes that was passing that were passing down these um, unwanted characteristics, or if it was being culturally moved through from one type of parenting style to the next to the next generation. Either way, the goal was definitely to just stop that. And it relied on all of these very racist tropes and ideas about immigrants and people from different countries. And these narratives are really deeply entrenched. I mean, we're also talking right now, we're talking about the states. This does extend to Canada for sure, but we're sort of limiting this conversation to the U.S. This is a country that engaged in enslavement for a very long time. These ideas of course, things change throughout the society, but it more just took on a different face. Things never really go away. They just transform. And so these were the circles that Sanger and McCormick were trafficking in. They were talking about it all the time. Sanger, in particular, was in support of a major Supreme Court decision in 1927 called Buck v. Bell. Now, this was a landmark case that made it legal to involuntarily sterilize what were called mental defectives. So if you were considered to be mentally ill in whatever way, I mean, however that was conceived of at the time, you could be sterilized against your will, which is heinous to think about. But this was not... It makes me, like, nauseous. Like, that that makes me, like, sick to my stomach to think about. And also, who is determining who it falls in that... You know, like we talk about this all the time. Where's yeah. the line? Mm-hmm. And if it's just up to the discretion of the person doing that, they could pick anybody. And who decides? Yeah. Who oh. decides? Think about the power dynamic that that creates. And again, this was the Supreme Court. This is the biggest court in the free world making this declaration. And Margaret Sanger was very much in favor of it. She actually wrote a book called The Pivot of Civilization. And I took a line from it. So she argued that Quote, every feeble-minded girl in her childbearing age needed to be segregated in order to prevent her from bearing imbecile children. So she was literally advocating for the segregation of people so that they wouldn't reproduce, which is, again, I mean, these things are just... She's really losing me. At the beginning, I was like, I am team both these ladies. Mm -hmm. Like, yes. Yeah, no. And I'm like... (laughs) Come on, girl. She's lost us. us. Yeah, you lost me for sure. (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, for sure. I mean, they were very, very problematic figures. And just to give another example, I think it's challenging, and people, people can debate this, but my opinion is that it is challenging when you're so driven by principle. And so Margaret Sanger was in favor of birth control basically at the expense of anything else. She was willing to ally herself with some very, very unsavory characters, to say the absolute very least. She, in fact, gave many talks to the women's division of the KKK. She was looking for support from anywhere, even from blatantly violent, harmful, horrific organizations. And so we do have to take her advocacy with a grain of salt, because At what expense? Mm -hmm. She was trying to lift up certain women while stepping on others. And I think that's a really important part of the story because often we just see the the shiny final product, which is a birth control pill, which gives women more control over their childbearing, which is great. But what did we have to do in order to get there? Where were we rallying support from? 
And so when we start to tease this apart, we start to see this really dark undercurrent of the story of the pill and why she's such a problematic figure. And this goes for Catherine McCormick as well. So now we have these two women. This went on, their advocacy went on for 50 years. So now they're kind of in their mid-70s. They want to and make something happen. They were growing, getting like all kinds of people on their side. Mm-hmm. Very were, polarizing. Very polarizing, very vocal. Right. I mean, there's a certain amount of context here, understanding that these were quite popular attitudes at the time. Today, if someone was to say anything near the things that she said, obviously we would be horrified. Now, I don't want to contextualize it so much to say that it's okay because everyone believed it because I also just think that's not true. I feel like, you know, we take it with a grain of salt. We understand the time that she was growing up in. But at the same time, certain things to me are wrong, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, So now we have these two women that they have the money, they have the ambition, obviously, but they need to make something happen. So they found a researcher by the name of Gregory Pincus. This is also a name that we might recognize if we've heard of the history of the pill. He's often referred to as the father of birth control, which I just think is... (laughs) Like, why is there such a need to have a father of something? First of all, and, you know, I don't want to (laughs) give... It's tricky because I don't want to give Margaret Sanger and Catherine McCormick too much credit. I mean, they did a lot. They're also just have horrible views but at the same time they really drove this project i don't think he was the father totally and yet we're like ah gregory the father (laughs) (laughs) which is interesting too in light of something that i'll talk about a little bit later on so he was a researcher at harvard and he was actually studying in vitro fertilization in rabbits so he was able to do that successfully which today we think oh like that's super cool ivf is everywhere people use that all the time At the time, he was way ahead of the curve, and people reacted very badly to his experiments. They were seen as trying to make science fiction into reality. He was kind of testing the natural order of things. He was called Dr. Frankenstein, and very much alienated from academia. So he ended up not getting tenure at Harvard, which is a very big deal in academic circles. You're, you're always working towards tenure. And so he ended up leaving the academy. And he ended up creating an independent lab, actually working in a converted garage. So he really kind of, things were spiraling. His career was not going Yikes, well. Gregory. Yeah, it was very much torpedoing his life. Mm-hmm. And so I believe it was actually at a dinner party that he met Margaret Sanger. And she just saw this as the perfect opportunity. He was someone with a lot to gain and very little to lose. He had virtually no professional reputation anymore. And so she brought him into this project. Now, he was very interested. He thought it was absolutely possible. And he created a prototype of the pill. So now at this point, they have a pill, but they need to be able to test it. Because to get approval, to bring it to market, they have to show, obviously, that it works. So they had to loop in another doctor, ideally a clinician, who would be able to test it on patients. Now, this was kind of a, uh, what's the term? Like a random assortment of people so far. And one of the things they had to do was really be able to market the pill. So they wanted someone handsome. They wanted someone (laughs) well-liked. They wanted sort of like the poster boy 
that could help them really make this a legitimate Ladies, take this so we can have sex and you won't get pregnant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so they found an OBGYN by the name of John Rock. So funny enough, when I was doing, when I was brushing up on some of my research, I found an article that quoted him as tall, slender, and silver-haired, with a gentle smile and a calm, deliberate manner. And I was like, wow, so I he love was a silver fox. <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, you are the man. Yo, these people are smart. I They're know. smart. Like, kind of evil, but kind of yeah, smart. Evil geniuses, for sure, but yeah. geniuses nonetheless here. Totally. So they looped him into this project. Something that was really important, too, is that he was Catholic, and so at the time, one of the obstacles that they were going to face was public perception of this pill. And so it was really advantageous for them to have a doctor who was a practicing Catholic, but who still believed in birth control. That would be really important for their public image. The whole package. The whole package. <laughs> he was their guy. And so they continued on. They created a pill, and now they had to test it. So before I go into some of the clinical trials, which are just mind-bogglingly messed up, the number two thing that I think people should absolutely know about the pill is that scientists heavily relied on Mexican folk traditions when they were creating the birth control pill. So this is something that even I didn't know I've been studying reproductive medicine for the better part of a decade, and I had never heard this until last year when I was doing a little bit more in-depth research on the pill. So in 1940s, scientists discovered that generations of Mexican women had been eating something called the Barbasco root, and they were doing this in order to regulate their fertility. The Barbasco root is a kind of wild yam. And so they started wondering, you know, why are they doing this? Is there something to this? Is it just folk medicine? Is it actually having some sort of physiological effect? And so they took the Barbasco root and they looked at it in the lab and they realized that it contained a large amount of a substance called diostenin, which is basically a form of synthetic progesterone. That's crazy. Yeah. That's, that is crazy. Right? <laughs> Oh my God. So, okay. for literally thousands of years, wow. women had already figured this out. It wasn't in the shiny package of a little pill. It wasn't something that had like a stamp of approval from the FDA. But they knew it was working but, somehow. But it was working. And then when we look at it under the microscope, it's like, oh, it's because. Exactly. Here we go. It contains the substance <laughs> that we need. That. <laughs> so, literally, I mean, I'm oversimplifying it here a little bit, but they took this compound, they added synthetic estrogen to it, and then they created Enovid, which is the first pill. And what's fascinating, too, and this is why I get so revved up by the idea of, like, the father of the birth control pill. No one really seems to know that it relied on thousands of years of lay women's expertise and knowledge. But, of course, we see a scientific man. It was Gregory. <laughs> it was Gregory. It was just Gregory, yeah. It was all Greg. <laughs> he found the yam when yeah. he was foraging the woods. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he figured it out. <laughs> he just, it was him and him alone, which is absurd. Yeah. So... And this is, I mean, this is something I think we'll maybe touch on in different uh, different podcast episodes, but there's really been a long history of taking women's knowledge and sort of transforming it into men's domain. We even see this with the transition from birth practices, from 
being something that was very much considered women's work. This was something that would be attended by your mother, your grandmother, a midwife, a birth coach in some way, whether or not they used those terms at the time. That was the idea. And then slowly it became under the jurisdiction of medical men, of doctors. And today, very much, we give birth in hospitals, mostly. I mean, not everyone, of course. There is a sort of resurgence of uh, doulas and midwives. But again, that's sort of a more contemporary turn. Really, in the last 200 years, in various aspects of reproductive medicine and development, there's been this turn of like taking women's knowledge and making it something that men do. And I think this is one of those examples. We had thousands of years of women's traditional knowledge. They were obviously doing something right. We just took that and repackaged it and made it about, you know, the scientists' accomplishments. And so I think that's really problematic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So now the third thing, we're going to go into the clinical trials. Oh, God. Trials I know. I was like, am I going to regret this? <laughs> Let's hear about these trials. The trials are so not good. <laughs> Everyone, you should have something to punch. Yeah. Just like make sure you've got a pillow or I something was gonna to say, scream into. I was just going to like, say. <laughs> you're going to need something. Have a little pillow. Yeah, it's really, it's really shocking. Okay, guys, don't hate me, but we are going to end part one right there. You can go listen to part two where she dives into the remaining four things that you want to know about birth control, the history, how it came to be, starting with the craziness of the trials. So please go listen to part two. It will blow your mind. Make sure that you've got something on hand because we weren't kidding when we said you're going to get pissed off and that's totally okay. Don't look away just because it's uncomfortable. Go listen to part two. Thank you so much for listening to the Root and Remedy podcast. If you like this episode and you find our information helpful, then it would mean the world to us if you would leave a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcast. Whether that's Spotify, Apple, Google, or somewhere else, just click that rating and review button and leave five stars. That allows us to continue to bring you great guests, free information in the women's health field, and get this podcast out to more people who need it. And of course, if you want to explore any of our courses, our one-on-one services, or any other resources, we have, you can find everything at rootandremedywellness.com.